0: Hello and welcome to the health pulse, a podcast exploring how analytics in the health and life sciences industry is growing and its repercussions in all our lives. My name is Greg and I'm your host for this series. And as always, I'm going to be joined by my expert guest to discuss a topical subject. And you know, last week in the episode, we were talking with uh, Josh Morgan and one of the things that he touched on a little bit there was this idea of equity and uh, bias in healthcare. And so this week, I'm joined by a colleague, Hewitt Tesfaye, and we're going to really dig into that subject in much more detail. But before we get started on that, as always, keep those questions and comments coming in to the Health Post podcast at sas.com. And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, we're going to be looking to build an episode where we start answering those questions and looking at a compilation of some of the feedback and getting all of our guests to respond to them. So without further ado, let me introduce Hewitt to you. And Hewitt, let's just start off by, can you just tell us a bit about yourself, what it is you do, and where you fit into the world of SaaS?
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm Hewitt Tesfaye. I currently work as a senior data scientist in SaaS's healthcare industry solutions team, which is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, but my day-to-day work is really talking to our healthcare customers and helping them be uh, leverage SaaS technology to tackle some of their pressing healthcare use cases that they have. In addition to that, we're also exploring some more innovative, lightweight applications, industry-specific applications that we can create in the healthcare space.
0: Brilliant. And one of the things we're asking all the guests at the start of the podcast is just tell us something a bit about yourself that's a little bit more personal, something that's a kind of, you know, what's Hewitt like away from the world of work?
1: Hmm. I definitely listen to a lot of podcasts, so I'm just really excited to be on one. Let's see, outside of that, I do really enjoy doing some interesting creative hairstyles. That's something I've been experimenting with over the last six or seven years at this point. Right now, I am rocking what we call faux locks. So they're fake dreadlocks since I can't commit to dreadlocks right now. (laughs) They're very long and it took about seven hours to do. That's something I've been uh, sort of turning towards as a sort of an artistic self-expression as well as self-care.
0: That's fantastic. And I get to see you and be with you on a fairly regular basis. So I can, I see this in in real life and it does look fantastic. (laughs) Appreciate it. Yeah. So we're going to look at now a bit about uh, bias and what I want to talk to you a bit about to start with, um, we talked with Josh last week about equity, as I mentioned at the beginning, and we talked about access to care. So when you think about algorithms and access to care, especially as we start changing where our front door to healthcare is, how do you see the dangers in what we're doing coming forward and maybe some solutions in that?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's important to first recognize that algorithms are used being used sort of across the board, uh, not just to determine who should get access to healthcare or insurance or what the premiums should be, but everything along the lines of reducing costs, improving healthcare outcomes, improving patient experience, algorithms have some place to play in that. But a lot of the use cases that I come across in healthcare have a lot to do with assessing risk. So categorizing people based on some type of risk, whether it's the risk of not showing up to a doctor's appointment, the risk that people won't adhere to their prescribed medication or some other intervention, the risk they may develop a chronic illness the following year. So there's a lot of risk mitigation use cases that we come across that are sort of prime for artificial intelligence and algorithms to learn from historical data, learn the patterns of people's behavior as well as how, you know, diseases progress and be able to predict what the outcome is going to be. And I do think there's great promise in these types of use cases and, you know, being able to sort of direct care based on somebody's risk score. But there's also a lot of pitfalls that we need to be aware of. And a lot of that, I think, comes from potentially not understanding how the healthcare system has worked historically and how different populations interact with healthcare systems that we as algorithm designers, data scientists, machine learning engineers, we don't walk in those shoes of those people. So we might not know how they interact with the healthcare system. So as we're designing our algorithms, we might fall sort of victim to not being able to design it for everybody. And so the accuracy of healthcare algorithms needs to be, I think, of the most important, not as a, at a global level, but at the individual subpopulation level as well, to make sure that when we are creating these predictions, they are accurate for everybody across the board.
0: That sounds really interesting, Hugh, And As you describe it, I kind of, I'm thinking about how that makes sense and how that's going to play out in the real world. But I think to help people listening to this today, when you Mm -hmm. think about what you just described, how might somebody experience that in their life? What as an example of an algorithm bias in healthcare today, or Mm -hmm. that we might see play out into somebody and how might that adversely affect their healthcare?
1: Yeah, I think the most famous example that we've come across, um, is the work of Ziad Obermeyer and his colleagues over the last, I think it came out back in 2019 at the end of the year, where they found racial bias in an algorithm that's widely used across various healthcare systems in the United States. And that algorithm is really designed to predict what the healthcare cost of a patient is going to be in the following year. And part of the reason they were using costs is because of this assumption that if people are heavily utilizing healthcare services, they are at greater healthcare need, therefore they're sicker. And so they're equating costs to healthcare need in this case. So what ended up happening is that even though the researchers with algorithm designers did not include race as an input into that model, the algorithm still learned to assign a higher risk score to white patients over sicker black patients. And the way that algorithm was being used in the healthcare system was basically to prioritize patients into care management programs. So. Sicker, quote unquote, sicker or costlier patients in the following year would be admitted into a care management program where they have access to additional healthcare services like uh, a nurse calling you up to make sure you're taking your medication or home visits. Um, so, additional care that's being given to those patients that have been deemed high risk by this algorithm. And so, part of the reason why the racial bias was coming through is that the, the algorithm designers did not account for the fact that the patterns of healthcare service utilization could be different by race, where for a given level of disease burden, you'll see less dollars being spent on black patients than on white patients in the United States for a myriad of reasons, historical and otherwise. So the bottom line is healthcare cost does not equal healthcare need in the context of black patients. And if that is not taken into consideration, when we're designing the algorithm, it will inevitably restrict access to care for black patients. And this is after the patients have actually crossed that front door threshold, and they're actually within the healthcare system, and they're being uh, sort of driven in one direction or another based on outputs that these algorithms are providing.
0: Okay. And you make this sound like it's a very modern issue, the, this mm-hmm. bias piece is something that because we have ai because we have technology this has become like a modern issue i was just reading this morning a bit about this idea that medical devices may inherently be biased as well and the simple pulse oximeter are you able to talk about historically then is this a, is this a new problem or is this something that we have faced for a while and we're just waking up to it and, and can you just explain a little bit about some of the more positive progress in this space
1: yeah, I don't think this is a new problem by any means. I think more than anything else, um, these algorithms and, you know, the mistakes that they've made and the headlines that we've seen are more of a, of a reflection, right? They're, it's a mirror that's reflecting back society and the way society works. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting and it's great that people are taking a lot more interest in this topic, because it's easier to interrogate an algorithm than it is to interrogate an entire healthcare system and to ask the algorithm, oh, why did you give a high risk score for a particular patient over another, even though their metrics might be identical? So it's certainly not a new phenomenon by any means. It's just that algorithms, I think, are... are exposing uh, some of the healthcare practices that we've had in the past and putting them sort of at the forefront where we can interrogate it without actual maybe fear that somebody gonna become defensive if that makes sense.
0: That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the things in medicine is, it is very much a hierarchical process and it's a decision tree process. So if you think in many ways, it should lend itself to this kind of algorithm very easily. But when you start to see this kind of bias coming into the story, I can see why that can create its own problems. So, mm-hmm. so if you think about that and you think about some of the kind of ways we can benefit, so what's the one thing you wish that people would understand about responsible AI today and how it might be delivered?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's important to understand that you know, we need to sort of lay down our ego a little bit and dig deeper into our curiosity because as people in the space of data science and designing artificial intelligence systems, a lot of us come from very similar backgrounds, similar education level, uh, you know, it's a we become from a very small portion of the of the population and our tools have the power to affect the course of people's lives at a, at a much greater scale. And so if we are able to sort of harness this sense of empathy that we may not know how our algorithms are actually gonna behave in the real world, it could go a long way. So the example that I gave you about the uh, the algorithm that was assigning people to care management programs, just a simple understanding that care service utilization could be different across racial groups could have mitigated this entire problem from the beginning. And so I just want to make sure that people understand that we as data scientists and people in tech have the power in our hands to choose what parts of society we want to amplify in the world through our through our tools and what parts that we don't want our tools to learn and to amplify into the world. So I think there's a quite great a great deal of responsibility we should feel to ensure that we're not Perpetuating historical biases that have been going on for centuries at this point. And to really sort of be aware that our tools have the, the power to uh, sort of solidify and calcify these, these systemic issues even further.
0: That's really interesting you bring that up. And now you've talked a bit about racial bias in this as well, but I want to think about other types of bias that exist too. I mean, one of the things that I hear regularly is, you know, our ageing population drives huge cost changes in in healthcare. Now that's a bias because there are a lot of people who are very old, who are very healthy, and there are a lot of people who are very young, who are very healthy. Can can you just reflect on some of these other biases and and just talk a little bit about why they might have an impact on health systems and, and maybe think a bit about what we can do to improve that?
1: And I think part of the reason these biases even show up, whether they're, you know, age bias or racial bias or gender bias or how, how whatever you want to call it, um, socioeconomic bias, because I'm sure that's a lot of it is maxed by that, too, is our lack of understanding, in my opinion, of how people interact with the healthcare system, what their real needs may be. I think you've given a couple examples, uh, Greg, in the past for how, you know the aging population doesn't always have a huge burden on the healthcare system. And that's just an assumption that we have in our heads that we sort of then enact programs around, but that doesn't necessarily have to be true. And I think we need to, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about honing in our curiosity to ask the questions, to challenge our own assumptions when we're creating these algorithms so that the people who have either historically been marginalized or people who are vulnerable or at greater risk of being harmed by these types of decisions are are taken into consideration when we're designing this. And this really starts from the very beginning of asking the question of, should we even build this algorithm? Is it appropriate in this context to try to automate this process or not? And then from that point forward, if we say the answer is yes, at every step of the analytics lifecycle, we need to be asking ourselves questions. Is the data representative of the population we're trying to affect change in? Is the target variable distributed equally across various groups, the aging population, as well as men and women, as well as, you know, different racial groups and so on. And we need to continue to interrogate the data and the question that we're trying to solve at every step of the analytics lifecycle, all the way until we deploy the solution and we're training people on how to interpret the results and uh, take action on it.
0: And I know one area that you've shown some interest in as well is in uh, medical imaging. And, you know, to me, I would look at this and go, how on earth do you get an algorithm to be biased in a medical image? Because the image doesn't necessarily know how old it is or or the the race of the image or, you know, all the things you've explained so far would not apply to an image. So, you know, tell me a bit about imaging and where we can uh, fall into pitfalls there.
1: Yeah, I think a really interesting and probably famous example is um, where an algorithm was trained to try to differentiate between, again, this is not a healthcare specific example, it just goes to show what I'm trying to say, to tell the difference between a wolf and a dog. And the accuracy was great. This algorithm was really, really good at telling the difference between a wolf and a dog. But then what they found out later on when they tried to interrogate, you know, what parts of this image of a wolf is the algorithm be able to, you know, with high accuracy say, this is what differentiates a wolf versus a dog. And what they found was that the algorithm was really focusing on the background. So a lot of images of wolves end up being taken around snow. And so the algorithm picked up on that pattern that there's a lot of snow every time, you know, an image is labeled as a wolf. And so the algorithm was able to quickly differentiate between a wolf and a dog, where in reality, if we take away that um, background image of snow, we don't really know how the algorithm would be accurate in predicting what the image is. So I think the example I'm trying to give here is to illustrate that the algorithms can pick up on patterns that we don't intend to train them on. And, I, and that's an important point. So even if you're not including information that you want your algorithm to learn, it still has the ability to pick up on those things, those unintended things that you are not actively telling it to pick up on. So it's it, I think it just goes to show that we as just human beings have blind spots, mm-hmm. right? And um, sometimes the algorithm can pick up on patterns that we never even imagined were there and just put it in front of us. So we just need to be constantly questioning our own blind spots, including diverse perspectives, as we are creating these algorithms to make sure that we are filling in those blind spots as we go.
0: Okay, that's really interesting because mm-hmm. I think, you know, people don't necessarily recognize that. So on the in the whole kind of picture then, you think about it, Do you see algorithms putting my doctor out of business? Can you see that I am going to go and see a computer who's going to diagnose me and treat me in a better way than my doctor?
1: Not anytime soon, in my opinion. Um, I think uh, AI sometimes is given a lot more credit than it deserves. Not to say that it's not powerful, it is. But I think it always has to be in tandem with human decisions. It has to augment the human decision rather than replace, um, you know, people as, as well-trained and as deeply trained as physicians are. Uh, so I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon, truly. But I do see, you know, we've seen talked about risk scores in healthcare where an algorithm's decision could potentially sway how we decide to treat particular patients. And I think that is a real risk to, you know, as we're augmenting the human decisions through algorithms, if the algorithm is not accurate, it could have the power to sway what the end decision maker decides to do.
0: So bearing that in mind then, who should be accountable? Where does responsibility lie? So if my doctor uses an algorithm to make a decision and it goes wrong and maybe my life is put at risk or or maybe I have a completely life changing event, where does that liability lie? Mm-hmm.
1: That's a great question. You know, it certainly should not solely fall on the shoulders of the lone statistician or the lone data scientist. And I'm not just saying this because I'm part of that community, but really every single person and institution that was involved in producing the data in cleaning the data and building the models and deploying those models and making decisions on those models shares part of that responsibility. And there's a lot of it to go around in my opinion. So I say this because, you know, every step of the analytics lifecycle is an opportunity, again, to question the data and the objectives of the project and ask ourselves questions like, you know, um, is there accurate representation in the data? Are we even asking the right question here? Um, is there, you know, fairness and accountability sort of baked into the entire process? Do the people at the end of this model, the people who are actually taking the insights and making decisions on them, are they well-trained on the limitations and the caveats of the tools that they're using? Because they shouldn't really take the information and take it for truth or for full value. They really need to be able to understand the, the limitations of the tools that they're interacting with. So it's really every person that's part of this chain needs to take responsibility And in addition to that, I was actually listening to another podcast where Dr. Ruha Benjamin was talking about how as consumers of algorithms, um, so as the patient, as the student in a medical system, we need to advocate for better tools and take some responsibility ourselves. And obviously, a lot of that response should not fall on end consumers, but we should demand better of the people that are designing these algorithms, um, instead of just you know taking it for uh, as a fact as something that we can't do anything about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting area of liability. And and one of the questions I always kind of throw to people is, you know, I don't believe we'll see a self-driving, a fully autonomous vehicle in our lifetimes, not because the technology doesn't exist, but more because we don't know where to lay the liability that goes with it. So uh, bearing that in mind, just thinking about uh, how people get confidence in that system, do you think the average person cares where the liability sits? And do you think it's something that people are going to become uh, more concerned with as more of these algorithms come to, to pass?
1: Hmm. I think that's it's a, a great question. Um I think it's important to recognize that we are already interacting with algorithms on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of us are not complaining about it. <laughs> yeah, every time I plug in uh, the address to go to a different location in my Google Maps, you know, that's me interacting with an algorithm. Or every time I log on to Facebook and an ad pops up, that's me again interacting with an algorithm. I think there's growing awareness of the pitfalls of these algorithms, now more so than ever. There was a film called Coded Bias that came out not too long ago where they featured Joy Buolamwini and her work on facial recognition technology. There was another documentary on Netflix that came out, The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you've seen that one. And again, I think having these kinds of documentaries and content out there that raises awareness that, you know, with all of the amazing things that comes with having algorithms out there, tailoring their recommendations specifically for you and making you feel like, you know, they really understand and see you. There's, there's a lot of benefit to that. But at the same time, I think there is a growing awareness of the pitfalls of these algorithms. And, you know, part of ongoing conversations around what legislation could look like in this area of uh, algorithmic fairness and accountability and transparency and so on is giving people the ability to provide feedback to the system, to say this was not accurate or to provide input back to the system that, you know, their experience with this algorithm was was terrible and this is the, the impact that it had on their lives. So I think being able to incorporate that end user feedback back into the algorithm and inform how it's designed and Made better is could be something interesting that comes to light later on.
0: Brilliant. That's really interesting. Thanks very much. for it. Um, I'm just throwing a question out at the end of this piece. This is the last question I'm going to ask you. Uh, think into the future. Like if you can imagine where we're going, what kind of things do you think we might see in the world of AI and overcoming bias in this space? You know, if you were going to really kind of throw the ball out there and think of something that's kind of maybe out of the listener's thought or, or where we might already be thinking we're heading.
1: Mm. I think it's important to note uh for our audience that there is AI legislation coming soon um particularly from the European Union that is slotted to uh they're apparently planning to create a legislation proposal at the beginning of this year. So with that, I think there's a lot of changes that we can look forward to uh, where a lot of accountability will be taken by, uh, you know, software vendors as well as people that are developing these algorithms. I do also see, can predict, I guess, um, the growth of algorithmic auditing as being sort of a new frontier of jobs that are coming out uh, where people are, you know, they need help with assessing, the risks associated with the algorithms that they're designing and uh, to figure out ways to mitigate that risk. So I do see sort of that uh, that next frontier for people in the data science and statistics um, areas that they can look forward to is this algorithmic auditors type job.
0: Hey, Hugh, you know, I said I had, that was the last question. Well, you just got me thinking, and there's something else I want to ask you about. Yeah, there was a paper published recently that talked about how bias has been written into uh, certain algorithms quite deliberately. And I I wanted to see if you were aware of that paper, if you've seen it, and and just some opinions of that paper and what's in there.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me about that. The paper is called Hidden in Plain Sight. And it lists out 13, I think it was around 13 different algorithms that determine what kind of treatment people should receive. And again, this is once they've crossed the threshold of the front door of healthcare, they're in the system and people are trying to determine what care pathway they need to go down. So to give you an example that's referenced in the paper, Uh, And this is from the area of cardiology, is the American Heart Association's Get With the Guidelines Heart Failure Risk Score, which predicts the risk of death in patients that are admitted into the hospital. So all else held equal, it assigns an additional three points for any patient that's identified as non-Black. So those are... um, You know, those that are considered non-Black are considered at greater risk of death once admitted into hospital and then are sort of given additional services to mitigate that risk, essentially. So conversely, those that are identified as Black have three less points in that risk score. Um, And so, you know, the ramifications of not identifying the risk in that patient population could be literally life and death. And there's another algorithm that they mention um, within cardiology, again, but it's sort of like a mirror opposite of, of the one that I just talked about. And this one, I believe, was created by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons that estimates, again, the risk of death. But in this case, it's during surgery, so complications during surgery. And the algorithm uses race and ethnicity here as well. But in this case, all other variables held equal, patients identified as Black, are given a higher risk score when in the other one, they were given a lower risk score. So if this type of algorithm is used in sort of a preoperative setting, you can imagine that a risk score can be used as a reason not to provide that kind of operation service to patients with high risk scores. So in both cases, sort of resources are being diverted away from Black patients because of these algorithms. And it's just, it's really interesting how in a lot of use cases where, you know, race and other demographic information are available, there's a lot of hesitations about whether we need to use them in the algorithm or not. But in this case and the other 13 algorithms that are listed in this research paper, they just throw it all in and uh, are using it in practice, which is a little wild. And it's not to say that, you know, these algorithms need to be abandoned immediately. I don't think I'd advocate for that without, you know, proper interrogation of uh, how these algorithms came to be, what is the, the the research that's backing this. I think we really need to ask those questions and we need to ask them fairly quickly. Uh, but I thought it was just such a, an eye-opening paper that I hadn't come across before.
0: And what I found interesting about it was when the authors of the algorithms were asked whether they included a racial uh, piece in there uh, the kind of it seemed to be like a collective shrug it's like nobody had even thought about why they'd included it and I guess from a, a logic point of view you probably look at it and say this is a relevant piece because we know family history for example is a very good indicator of of health outcomes but you know h- how do you reconcile that like is it because you're looking at family history or is it that you're looking at ethnicity can you kind of differentiate between the two
1: um, I think uh, one of the authors of the paper had, had- made a comment elsewhere about how when they're in medical school as doctors uh, or training to become physicians, there's a lot of mention of how race is a factor or is a, is a risk for hypertension and other various things. But we know like through our social studies classes that race is a social construct and not a biological phenomenon because those of us that are considered Black, it's such a huge category of people. Right. And, um, you know, there's a real chance that somebody who's considered black in the United States might be more genetically similar to somebody from Europe than somebody like me who's from Africa. Right. But we're all sort of in this massive category of black, which might not be a good indicator for biological or genetic similarities within that group for us to determine care that should be provided to that massive group of people, if that makes sense. But I think for the longest time in healthcare, it has just not been questioned. Race has been used as a reason for many things, many sinister things, certainly. And it just has not been questioned for a long time. But I think it's great that people are starting to look at these old practices and say, hey, we need to have like real justification, research-backed justification to include race as a factor in algorithms that are being used in clinical settings.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much here. That's been a really interesting, insightful piece. And I'm sure, I, <clears throat> I'm sure our listeners will have lots of feedback on this as well. And just to remind you, you can do that through our email address, Podcast at sas.com. I really like this idea at the end there of algorithmic auditors. So please, we welcome comments on that and questions on that, because the the way the work is changing and the roles that are expanding in this space is something that we see a lot of across all our industries, but particularly in healthcare. So I think that subject of understanding and, and being able to review your algorithm using an audit path and, and seeing how that applies to legislation is really interesting. And I'm sure you've got an opinion on that as our audience. As mentioned before, we're going to bring those questions and comments in the episode where we're going to sum up and look at our discussions over the course of this series but i just uh, want to say thank you to hewitt for taking the time today to be on our podcast and join us thank you for joining me on the health pulse i've been your host greg horn like and subscribe to receive future episodes and we'll be back with you soon thank you